right, everybody. Welcome back to A Minor Detail. My name is Ryan Miner. I'm your host, and I hope you enjoyed the unseasonably warm October weather. Kim and I spent our weekend at my uh, my alma mater in Pittsburgh. We drove up on Friday afternoon, got to see a little bit of Duquesne, went back for some Greek life, and uh, saw some friends, had some good food, hung out with some political folks, and it was a good trip. I miss Pittsburgh. It's a great city and uh, a lot of memories there. So uh, we got back this afternoon. I have a great guest tonight. Um, you don't get too many too many opportunities to interview former governors, and this is one of Maryland's very best. So I want to welcome former Governor Rob, uh, Bob Ehrlich. Hey, Bob, how you doing? How you doing, Ryan? I'm good. Is <laughs> It's been a it's been a long time. Um, it has. I, guess it has. We, I, I liked hearing about your weekend, by the way. We. Oh yeah. We uh, we uh, well we're living college now with our, our oldest son playing for uh, Villanova, and uh, he's a freshman, and and uh, so we're living college football these days. Uh, I bet it's a blast. I love college football. In fact, I think I like college football more than I like the NFL these days. Yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> I think a lot of people agree <laughs> with you. <laughs> Will you? You played a little football, didn't you, in college? I did. Yeah, I I, I played for Princeton. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So, um, the whole the purpose of our show tonight, and what I really wanted to do, is just talk. We uh, look, you're we miss you, and I know that Thank you've you. been around, you've been <laughs> you've been doing things, and you're still you're still active. But um, you know, I kind of want to just go through uh, a little bit about your background, your career. I, I mean, a lot of people in Maryland who listen to my show, they. They, they're familiar with you, but, um, you know, it, it means a lot to me you came on, and I, I kind of want to go through um, what you're up to these days and uh, okay. your take on what's happening. So, look, you, you Bob, the, the thing that I remember most about you, and look, I didn't really get into politics. I'm 31 years old, and I didn't really get into it until about 2003 or four. It was during mm-hmm. President Bush's first run for office but the first time i ever heard your name was my mom and dad back in 2002 they said um well their life they were my grandparents too they're lifelong democrats i grew up in hagerstown and so of course you know a lot of those folks up there chris shank yeah um, yeah sure do absolutely andy yeah, spent a lot of time andy up there. Ser- yeah and you, you spent a lot of time up there you know guys like andy serafini um mm-hmm. just some really good folks and so yep I first heard your name, Bob, when I was, you know, I guess about I was in high school and I was a senior and you were running in 2002. And, you know, of course, we always heard Maryland's such a Democratic state. It's a Democratic state. Not a whole lot of Republicans can can win. And my grandfather at the time, he said, I'll tell you what, you keep your eye on Bobby Ehrlich from Baltimore. He's going to win this thing. And of course, I said, OK, I, yeah, I didn't know much about politics. Sure as hell. November 2002, here comes this little-known congressman from Baltimore, former state delegate um, who got involved in politics since 1986. Out of nowhere, you won this election, and I'm I'm serious. This upset the political establishment, and that was a big deal in Maryland. And when you ran that first time, Bob, for governor – uh, you jumped in the race. You you battled against Kathleen Kennedy Townsend, and that was a race for the record books. So, you know, when you first won that campaign for governor of Maryland, and I think up until that point, no Republican had been elected in the state of Maryland for what, like, forty years since Governor Agnew. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, since Governor Agnew. Um, so when you first won that race, Bob, how did you do it? What was the strategy? Well, um, it was it was a function of a number of things, and and the first thing was I. It was very difficult to leave Congress. I had uh, a really good seat. It was a pretty safe seat, a seat I had been reelected with 60 uh, plus percent uh, three times I, I completed my four I was completing my fourth term it was close to Washington uh, and so I could get home and have a little bit of a life uh, with my new baby and my wife uh, I was on a terrific committee commerce committee a lot, a lot of people uh, just lived to get on the commerce committee in, in the house and, and so yeah. I had a very strong staff so things politically were about as good as they could get um, but I also knew that uh, at some point in the House, uh, I would probably uh, uh, look to other things. Uh, I thought I was more uh, as an, of an executive than maybe a legislator, although I've been a legislator in the state legislature, obviously, and in Congress. And I thought this was the opportunity. Uh, I, I thought that uh, Ms. Townsend had lost, as you know, when she ran for uh, my congressional seat against uh, Helen Bentley. Uh, she was a lieutenant governor of an outgoing administration that wasn't particularly popular. I had a very strong political base in, in Baltimore County, Harford County. Uh, we thought we thought we could raise the money, and and I, I despite all despite all those I guess positives, I knew it would be it was a next to impossible race. But I also knew that if I didn't run at that time, I probably would never run statewide. Uh, that, yeah. that that was really the decision time. And I talked to Kendall and. And quite frankly, 9/11 had an impact on it. After 9/11, and we sat down together, and, and I was in, in Congress, obviously during 9/11. In fact, I was at the White House on 9/11 uh, as a deputy wow. whip, uh, talking to the president's staff about that fall's congressional schedule. So, the, long story short, it was either do it, um, become an executive, uh, or not, or just forget about statewide. And I thought that was the opportunity to potentially win. Quite frankly, I wasn't going to uh, commit. Any race, I didn't think we could win, but I thought there was an outside legitimate chance to win, and obviously we did. Yeah, it was a, a memorable time in in Maryland politics, and it was the first time that Republicans felt empowered, but for a long time. And yeah, listen, yeah. it's not been easy for Republicans in Maryland. The Democrats currently have a supermajority, and uh, they're you know, but they're they're whittling that down, and it would be nice to see a legislature that was a little bit more representative of Maryland as a whole. Uh, yeah, that, 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 that's a problem. Um, there's really two points to be made. Uh, one, the legislature is representative of three major subdivisions, and you know, those subdivisions are, are quite left, obviously, and, and, and those subdivisions dominate Maryland politics. And if you add those three subdivisions up in the House, it's about half the seats. Yeah. So it's very difficult for Republicans we're, we're, uh, to make any inroads toward a majority. We're, when I was first elected in 1986, we were, I was one of 13. Today, there's 50 Republicans in the House, so there has been major progress. But the problem is this. Those pickups have mostly, almost entirely been in seats previously occupied by more conservative Democrats. Mm-hmm. So what people have done in Western Maryland and Southern Maryland and the Baltimore suburbs, uh, in Northeast Maryland, what people basically have done is switch out uh, conservative Democrats for Republicans. So the voting really hasn't changed that much. Uh, but what you have had in, in the process is a strength in the Republican Party, but a Democratic Party now uh, – uh, 
that has eliminated its its conservative and really moderate wings. So what you're left with in Maryland today is a is a reliably hard left progressive Democratic Party, and it's a majority party, and they drive the state pretty hard left because they have the majority, particularly those three subdivisions. When you were, you know, you've always been described as I don't I hate using I hate gauging people in their politics because I'm I'm conservative on many issues, a moderate on some issues, and mm-hmm. um and that's kind of where I I think most people in our country are somewhere you know in the middle, um but where I live now in Montgomery County, I, you know, like I said, I grew up in Hagerstown, but Kim Kim and I live here in Montgomery. Big difference. Yeah, it's a very big difference, and I we live in here in, in North Potomac, and and Bob, when you ran for governor. I don't know if has any Republican ever carried Montgomery County, um, or you know. maybe maybe a century ago, whatever. But but again, um, my base was not necessarily the Republican. It color was a Republican base, but my base was my uh, my crossover conservative. Uh, now, really, what the Reagan base was, it was the Helen Bentley base, the Helen Sowerberry base is now the Trump base. It's working class Democrats around the Baltimore Beltway. It's uh, Dundalk and Essex, and where I come from, Arbutus and Catonsville and Kearney and and Essex and 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 when you add those uh, uh, right leaning uh, right of center Democrats to Republicans in Maryland, you get close to a majority. Yeah. And, and so and so uh, the state might be I think it's fifty eight twenty six or whatever Democrat to Republican. But in the philosophical sense, it's not that far left because a lot of those conservative Democrats vote Republican regularly. The problem, again, is the domination of very, very liberal members from those three subdivisions, particularly Montgomery County and Baltimore City. Oh, yeah, and it's – and I, one of these days we're going we're gonna to chip through that, and I think that you're going to see some change. You saw it in the last election. Um, you saw – Well, I haven't, I haven't seen a lot of change in that. You haven't really ever seen much change in that. Those three – see, that problem, again, if you look at – in fact, what you should do, a real pretty good idea, I think, as far as a Maryland history lesson, forget your listeners to understand this, is look yeah. at the Democratic leaders in the past until about 1990, where they came from. They came from the shore. They came from yeah. southern Maryland. You know, They came from northeast Maryland. They were conservative uh, the committee chairs, the presidents of the Senate, the speakers of the House, Clay Mitchell, when I was a member of the House of Delegates, he was the speaker, followed by Cass Taylor, Western Maryland. But now uh, those conservative Democrats are gone. They're eliminated. See, they're history, just like, by the way, in Congress. Yeah. And the Democratic Party is controlled by, by progressives. And not to be confused with liberals. These are progressives. And and uh, they're, well, they're the very hard left, and, and, and it's a problem. What's the, I mean, what is the difference between a liberal and progressive? Well, when, I grew, when you and I were growing up, when, when you were uh, – liberals and, 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 and uh, conservatives fought, you know, fought over issues, whether it's tort reform or budgets or taxes or whatever it happened to be. But uh, we also started from a common denominator, which was speech and, and freedom and, and the right to dissent and, and to engage. Uh, but that free speech movement today is, is as you see every day, particularly yeah. on college campuses, but not solely on college campuses, under a direct attack uh, but by progressive movement in this country, which is intent on shutting down speech, shutting down dissent. Uh, uh, alienating uh, or, or uh, uh, 
uh, demonizing, I should say, you know, anyone who has different views than, than the progressives, and that is antithetical to sort of you know, the free speech movement, Dr. King, the civil rights movement, the free speech movement, Berkeley, the whole nine yards, the whole 60s. Yeah. The 60s was about protest and dissent, but it was, you know, it was Vietnam and the women's rights movement and, and civil rights, but it was about protest. It was about dissent. It was about speech. The progressives today have no interest in free speech, clearly. Bob, you won your first race as governor um, in 2002 with 52% of the vote, and you won in places like Washington County, where I grew up, by mm-hmm. huge numbers. And it was yeah. in the same year that um, Delegate Leroy Myers, who you served you know, when you were governor, yeah. you served, yeah. he ran and beat Cass Taylor, the Speaker yeah. of the House, yeah. by something like 71 or 72. By the way, the point I just made previously, there's an example. Yeah. There's a right example of it. Exactly where um, you know more moderate conservative Democrats being replaced by a Republican. Now, yeah. I mean that's that that is happening, and uh, so you, you you look at where we are today. But I want to talk about your tenure as as governor. You were sworn in as the 60th governor of Maryland, and at that time you you have a you're going to be 60 years old this year. Is that right, Bob? That's that's right. <laughs> you were born in November 25th. My birthday is November 15th, so I think we're still. Okay. You might be right on the cusp of a Scorpio. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm Sagittarius, yeah. right? <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. So, um, big big birthday this year. But when you were sworn in, Bob, what you were 40? How old were you? Well, it was um, 2002. Yeah. So, oh, 2003, obviously 2003. So, uh, yeah. 14 years ago, 46, 47. Yeah. Yeah. So. When you when you were sworn in, you went right to work, and you said that you know you based your administration on fiscal responsibility, uh, education, public safety, commerce, and uh, health and the environment. You you talked about the five pillars, and mm-hmm. so um, you you opposed the sales and income tax increases, and you supported the legalization of slot machines to raise revenue. But then mm-hmm. one of the first official activities and safe, horse ra- and safe horse racing, more importantly. Yeah, of course. One of the first official things that you've done as as the governor, you got to hire people to work for you, people that you trust. And yep. hey, Bob, I wanted to say, I want everybody to remind everybody here. You gave Larry Hogan his start in, in politics. <laughs> well, that's not no, that's not true. That is not true. That's not his true. dad All gave right. him a start, but his dad gave him a start in politics. Obviously, right. in fact, the irony, the, the irony of that is that uh, my first or my second campaign I ever volunteered for was um, Larry's dad running for the United States Senate in 1982, and that's where I met Larry. Wow! And 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 he he run he ran for Congress against Denny Hoyer, and then was out of politics, building his real estate business, and doing very well. And we had been friends for years. And when we won, I called him and I said come see me and he thought he was coming just to see me to catch up and I, he walked in the office and I said you got to stop making all that money um you have to come work for me and you have to deal with Mike Miller yeah uh because you're the only one in the state that can really deal with Mike Miller and I met that by the way and he said what and, but the bottom line was he took the job and it worked out pretty good but um but he did a great job for me as a member of my cabinet he's obviously doing a great job as governor right now so uh, uh, it was a very interesting time, and putting the cabinet together uh, for the first time in 40 years was, was pretty challenging. In fact, half my cabinet was Democrats. 
That's right. They, they were, now, they were Schaefer Democrats. A lot were a number of them had been left over from the Schaefer administration. Schaefer was uh, pretty close to me. Uh, he he liked me. He liked my wife a lot. Uh, that establishment sort of Democrat, you know, from Baltimore, more conservative socially, particularly. Uh, uh, that part of his base obviously liked me. Uh, a lumber his of his fundraisers, in fact, supported me. So that was very helpful. Both he and Governor Mandel um, sort of adopted me as a young politician in, in the House of Delegates, and they were both very helpful to me during my career. This might sound overly simplistic, but this is, you know, my. I'll tell you what. I always I always look to Kim, and I and Kim has this brilliant political, intuitive sense, and I just I, I trust women's intuition way more than I trust my yeah. male friends. <laughs> you know, I mean, you look at look at your wife Kendall. I mean, just a, oh, yeah. a stellar person, probably has one of the, the the smartest minds, and she guided you through this, and it's it's uh you know it's incredible. But here's what Kim told me: she grew up in Reisterstown. And she was around Baltimore politics her entire life, Bob. And this is what she said to me, and, it, and I never, I'll never forget it. She goes, the reason why Bob Ehrlich won and the way that he ran his campaign, and like, she, like I said, this might sound overly simplistic, is because you never forgot where you came from. And, and, that's, and, I'm, and I'm serious. You never forgot that you were just a boy growing up in Arbutus. And, yeah. I mean, you're a middle-class guy, and you come from a middle-class family, and that never left you that the whole time you've been governor and since then. And, and that well, really, it matters it, 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 Well, it, it, in reality, it was, it was more, more working class. And uh, that working class, uh, those roots uh, helped me. Obviously, instill the values that I thought and still think are important. But it also, uh, being an athlete and having my ticket punched through athletics and seeing what uh, educational opportunity was able to do for me, it made me radicalized. It made me really, really interested in other kids who, from limited means, having opportunities that I had. And, and that's why, obviously, we made such a big deal charter schools, and, and uh, that's why we had that big fight over the Baltimore City schools, the, the very dysfunctional schools at the time. You remember the high-profile fights we had of with, with uh, Martin O'Malley and the Democratic Party and, and the Baltimore City school system. Um, I uh, took that message around the state with me every day, and I, I told everybody it was immoral. You know, we, we were shocked that so many kids, um, you know, minority kids, are overrepresented in the in the criminal justice system, and that's a big issue. And a lot of poor kids end up in the in the correctional system, uh, a juvenile and adult, and, and we wonder why. And, and there it is, right there in front of us. You know, we sentenced them to really bad schools, and then we're surprised at bad outcomes. And I took that message with me every day, and, and I, I lived. I mean, I lived that story. So uh, the opportunity to you know create charters in, in Maryland to get kids out of. Uh, Sort of uh, more uh, failing environments and the more successful environments was was important to me and and so that that sort of defined uh, our, our at least our, our educational initiatives while I was uh, while I was governor. Yeah, let's talk about that. Your education initiatives largely consisted among one silo. Bob was pushing charter schools through in Maryland, and as yeah. a person like me who believes in education choice, believes that kids shouldn't be defined by the zip code in which they go to school and that they, they 
parents need to have a choice. And there's so much pushback. There was so much pushback, but you kept hammering it and you talked about school choice. That's a tough issue to talk about in a state like Maryland where teachers unions are very now, predominant. Yeah, well, you're right. It was tough. It, it was it was easy because I really just believed it. So but it was hard politically because the fear, you know, the fear, particularly in the Democratic Party. Um and, and we lost that battle in Baltimore City. If you look at those schools that we fought over you know, 10, 12, 14 years ago, look at them today, n- nothing much has improved. And one of the worst things, one of the worst days I ever had as governor or in public life over 20 years was, you know, the day we lost that battle in, in the Baltimore City Schools, and they had a, a press conference to celebrate their victory. And I, I just said their victory was a victory over poor kids in bad schools. Yeah. And they were they were so happy to go keep those kids in those bad schools. And and I, I that really I lost some friends by the way in that battle friends I've, I've relationships I have never been repaired to this day because I I told some folks to me in the Democratic Party uh, some more liberal friends of mine this is a civil rights issue you can you talk about civil rights all the time this is a civil rights issue and here you are just cowtowing to the teachers union and 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 it was really a very difficult time and. I listen. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose. It was a it was a, a fight that I was willing to have. I wanted to have. I invited it. Under No Child Left Behind, federally, I had the ability to uh, uh, have the state either go private uh, 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 charter uh, or the state to take over those failing schools. I mean, I, quite frankly, the taxpayer forget the, the kids for a second. The moral issue, right. which is the most important, but the parents weren't getting the money's worth either. Yeah. And, and I made but, the point, by the way, to the extent, by the way, we produce dysfunctional kids from these dysfunctional schools, they become scary adults. So there was all sorts of levels I tried to appeal to to, you know, to, to, to people out, outside uh, who more, in more comfortable suburbs. Um, but again, uh, in a state like Maryland, it was a tough sell. Baltimore City, Governor O'Malley who was the, the mayor of Baltimore at the time, you had a public, I mean, it was a public spat with him. And well, just, well he, I mean, it wasn't with him. It may, obviously the press played it with him, but it was with, yeah. it was the schools that were failing. <laughs> it yeah. was just with schools that were not producing kids that could learn. And again, it was, uh, the press viewed it as, you know, preview of the governor's race and all that. And, yeah. and then, the, and then some viewed as black versus white Republican governor coming to a, African-American city, and, and I thought, well, if the race, forget race and forget all this stuff. The, the schools are failing the kids. It's not that complicated. But again, you can tell the frustration in my voice even to this day. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was a very negative result for kids. And, and then, and then they had that press conference to celebrate their victory, and I just thought that was just so uh, horrific. Uh, and, but it said all you needed to know about what their real motivation was, and it wasn't giving poor kids an opportunity to punch their ticket. But, Bob, wasn't one of the best days of your governorship when you saw the first public charter school open up? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah. wasn't that yeah, – yeah. I, I mean, It's cool. That was I, the, I, I visited them, yeah. I, in fact, I, I ran around to a bunch of, of them because it was so cool to see. 
and, and you know, obviously with charters, you have all sorts of freedom. The, the faculty, the teachers have all sorts of freedoms that public school teachers do not. And these kids were going to school at all hours, and they were in uniforms, and they were competing, and they were achieving, and it was really neat. And I believe, listen, I believe in residential charters. As I said, I, I became radicalized at an early age when I saw what education can do. And so whether it's vouchers, I don't care what it is. If it gets kids out of failing schools, I'm for it. Well, and you you worked so hard on some of these education initiatives, but as I mentioned earlier in this show, you got you got a lot of pushback, and a lot of the Democrats yeah. took you on. Yeah. And I think at times, Bob, the criticisms that were leveled at you were unfair. I really do. I mean, a lot of these criticisms. But look, you're a politician. You're hardened to this. You get it. You know how to operate. But yeah. I want to ask you another. I want to ask you another question. A lot of people in the state of Maryland, they look at people like Speaker Bush and um, Senate Leader Mike Miller, and they say, and this is this is the common rumor, Bob. They say it's not necessarily the governor who's the most powerful. You look at Mike Miller; they say he's one of the most powerful guys in the state. Yeah. It, I mean, it's That's true. true. Absolutely. Did, did I mean when you were when you were governor? Did you and Mike Miller? Did you guys have run-ins? Did you guys? Have, I mean, well, what was your relationship? If, if you, if they, I don't want to go back over old history, but the bottom line was that uh, when I was elected, Mike Miller told me, sat down at dinner one night and said, "Look, for the first three years, we'll cooperate when we can, um, and the, the last year, we're going to cut your heart out." And and it's precisely what he told me, and it's precisely what he did. Uh, for three years, we had a pretty good relationship. We got our major piece of legislation. We started with the Senate. We got. Uh, Obviously, the ICC done, and, and people with disabilities who created uh, that cab. We got you know, charter schools done. We got some some, some major pieces of legislation. We killed some things I wanted to kill, um, but uh, but the fourth year he was, you know, he tried to beat our brains out, and he did because he can, and they wanted their state back. Uh, and and Speaker Bush obviously was just um, just uh, very difficult to deal with for for the for the four years, but. Um, Mike Miller, for for most of the time, was actually pretty good to deal with. He, we certainly clashed over tort reform, as you recall. But I do remember that. that. But other than that, uh, he was pretty good to deal with and helped us get a number of our major initiatives uh, passed. Do you see Mike Miller is an old school politician who's a deal maker oh, yeah. uh, from 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 the jump from the jump. That's and that's how I've always viewed him is that somebody who yeah. could you could walk into his office and he could look at you in the eye and he's going to say something to you and he's going to say it bluntly and it might be a little curt but I'll tell you what I've been in there I've talked to Mike Miller one on one and he's in in even physically he's sort of a, 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 a I don't want to say intimidating guy but he you know, no, no, no no I know exactly what you're saying I think people uh, your your description is absolutely accurate 100% um but you can you can cut deals with him you can't and and you know, people say oh you know you don't go to uh to to the governorship or you know people really I guess purists and say to cut deals oh yes you do every major piece of legislation ever negotiated was a deal <laughs> Since you know, the beginning of time, so so yes, you do, and particularly when you're dealing from a position of weakness like I was, without anywhere near a majority in either house. So we were always dealing from position of weakness. But with Mike Miller, you don't forget. Originally, he's had to change, I guess, or thinks he's had to change with his party. But originally, he was a pretty conservative Democrat when he was elected, 
And um, I, I know that he's uncomfortable with some of the major Democratic Party positions these days. He could never say that. He never admit it. But, but um, we had some common ground, and he cared about certain things. That I cared about the University of Maryland, and we, we talked about that. We, we found common ground in order to deal. Yeah. Well, in, but you also mentioned that you had a tough relationship with Speaker Bush. And very I, tough, I heard very you, difficult. So, well, I mean, you, you characterize that as very difficult. Was it that he just constantly hit you from all sides every day? It, it had well, it was, just, it, was just, it was just, you know, in the House it was very difficult to, to, to deal because um, the Democrats were more to the left. Uh, in the Senate, Mike Miller still had a number of suburban, more moderate, and sometimes conservative Democrats. In the House, that process we described earlier in the interview, the the, the cleaning out of <laughs> any right of center Democrats have begun from the House. So you're dealing with pretty much a hard left voting block, a speaker who wanted to keep his speakership and was going to you know drift left with that uh, with that majority, and and he yeah. did. Bob, how did you make the decision to pick up Mike Steele as your LG? How, how that? You know, it's so funny. It's a great. It's a great question. People automatically assumed, well, you know, Mike Steele's African American, so you need a, and and, the, and that that's just the dumbest thing in the world to say. Yeah. And, you know, particularly since the African American vote, you know, you're going to get maybe ten, twelve percent. And with African American on the ticket, you might get thirteen percent. <laughs> So to pick my steel as a function of his skin color would would have been insane for me. It's just dumb. Uh, my steel was chosen uh, because he was one of my very good friends. He understood politics. He was state party chairman. He was a terrific campaigner, and we trusted one another. That's a pretty good formula, right? That's and a great. Formula. I knew, you know, he. he He's black. I got that, and 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 some people thought that was interesting, and I thought, you know, that's fine. That that's great. You know, to the extent we can start opening this party up. I'm a Jack Kemp Republican. I think that's important. I like but that. But that's not the reason he was chosen. And if it was, it'd be insulting, first of all. And and Mike is too close a friend of mine to to insult. Uh, he, we I just told him. I said, Mike, look. Here's the deal. Uh, and Mike and I had some very high-profile differences on a couple issues. Private, well, not I shouldn't say high-profile, but uh, personal differences. And I said, here's my promise to you, that uh, when this arises, when we're in, that I'll sit down and listen to you. And here's the deal from you to me, that when I'm, once I make a decision, you have to support me because you can't have two bosses, only one. Right. And, and and we and we have that kind of relationship. It was just great. And Mike was a very relevant lieutenant governor, very relevant. Was in all major policy discussions. Terrific uh, 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 person, and uh, it could not it could not have worked out better. Well, he he actually left the ticket when you ran for reelection in two thousand and six because he ran a very for very hard call. Yeah, yeah. We, we I, sat and... down and had a heart to heart and. Was it tough? He didn't want to leave, but he saw it was an opportunity, and I said, Mike, you know, I'm never staying your way. I'll support you a million percent, but it was, it was a very difficult call. Yeah, and, and but but you actually picked uh, a female to be on the ticket the next time. Chris right? Cox. Chris Cox, who, yeah. was, who I thought was you know, one of the most in, impre- impressive individuals I've ever met in my life. He was a member of my cabinet, uh, disability secretary. Uh, blind, uh, not from birth, but uh, someone who was an incredibly efficient person, 
uh, represented one of my top priorities, which was to create an, uh, a department of disabilities, not to expand government, but to empower people with disabilities to gain employment. She was spot on in that regard. You know, there's certainly a division of opinion within the disabilities communities about you know, departments of disabilities and their mission and all that. Well, mine was about empowerment. It wasn't about you know, creating another uh, uh, crutch or whatever for, for, for certain people because of disabilities. I, I wanted to empower people, and people with disabilities wanted to be empowered. And with technology yeah. today, you can empower people, and you can put them back to work. That's and so Chris was just she got she had lobbied me she was a lobbyist um, for for the blind issues in in Congress she had come to my office we've gotten to know her I invited her into my cabinet she had done a great job and I thought she was the perfect uh, person for uh, for our ticket. You you became governor and then we had the opportunity to go up to Camp David and you sat in front of George W. Bush, who was president at the time, new president, his first term. And I could just imagine president Bush with that Texas twang probably looks at you and says, you know, what can I do for you? You know, and, and you that's said, precisely what happened. That's <laughs> did you, did, Have you heard me tell the story? No, I want to hear it. Well, that's precisely what happened. Um, we get up there, we, uh, we go um, we go work out, which was pretty cool. Just the three of us, um, Kendall, He's myself. He's a big workout guy. He's a big workout guy, and so, so am I. And we worked out, and um, we go shower up and meet for lunch, and we sit down, and, and Laura's there, and and uh, Kendall, and and uh, she said, "What can I do for you?" And when when a president asks you that, it's a, it's the answer. It's got to be a one item list. <laughs> It has to be a one-item list. And my answer was, I need expedited review on the ICC, Intercounty Connector. I need expedited regulatory review, and I need you to tell Secretary Mineta, the Transportation Secretary at the time, to get that done for me. I need that road. Maryland needs that road. It's been postponed for 60 years. And he did, and, 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 and as God is my witness, every time I saw Secretary Mineta after that, every time, he would come up to me and say, here's my report. Here, we're getting the ICC done. <laughs> and so the president really came through for me and for the people of Maryland. So, you know, here's, here's what I want to know. When you, when you first walked, is that the first time you met the president? No, one no, on no. One? We, had met, we, we had met numerous times. But I, I just imagine it to be – and look, the Camp David is in the state of Maryland. It's up on the Catoctin Mountains, and you, know, you go up there. You're, you're the new guy on the block. You just got elected governor, and then you walk in, and you stand before the president of the United States. It still has to be humbling, Bob, isn't it? Well, I mean, what, what, it, what was really funny was that um, previous to that, many – may have been a year pre I don't know. I forgot when it was. Um, but I had been at the White House for dinner, and we were standing in, in a line. It was a buffet line, and, and the president butted up in front of me. It's like in, in middle school, right? And I said, hey, 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 you know, what, you know, what the, hey, what the heck? And uh, I said, uh, here's the line. And he said, yeah, it's, it's, it's my house. <laughs> and uh, that was a great line, and and I reminded him of that at Camp David because I said, uh, hey, this is this. I said, hey, now you're in my state. Okay, you're in my state, and we had that kind of relationship. And then we bowled at the bowling alley that night, and Kendall came in, and our team beat his team, and Kendall got in his face and and and, and pointed and finger pointed him like uh, you know you just lost, and it was just you can, 
we had a, a, a lot of fun with him. Uh, very down to earth. Laura Bush, absolute class. Very quiet. Oh. Uh, she was the one to try to control him. But uh, <laughs> we just had a lot in common. He's a great sports fan. Um, he had followed. She had watched my inaugural, which was a, you know which was pretty nice. Wow. And so uh, we had a great relationship with the Bush White House, all except for medical marijuana, which um, I had supported in Congress. I made it known as governor. I would support, again, just about any option for uh, 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 end-of-life situations uh, slash uh, intense pain situations. The, the office, uh, the uh, White House, uh, not the president, but uh, I'm trying to remember, uh, at, at the time I got a lot of pushback from the Office of, of Drug Control from the White House, a lot of pushback. And, yeah, uh, that was but, – and look, I'm a, that, I'm a big supporter of that, and that's something yeah. that has – I think Americans, especially Marylanders, were evolving on that. That's one of those – it's like same-sex marriage. A lot of people were uncomfortable with it, especially back in the time when you were governor, Bob. And you know, look, I, I think we're at the point where um, that's one of those – social issues that used to be one of those wedge issues, and I think that's on the back burner these days. It's not talked about that much anymore. Well, that issue you know, was decided by the court. Um, yeah. The, the issue of um, marijuana is an interesting issue because my support for that issue was a function of that narrow category. I have more, far more greater, deeper concerns with regard to legalization generally with what I see, with my, what my wife, a drug court prosecutor, sees, um, with this sort of intense desire to get high in America these days and and and, and the social ills that, that come from it. So uh, that I understand that this is an issue that has been around an awful long time when Mayor Schmoke in the 80s talked about legalization as a function of crime control. I did not criticize him. I understood what he was saying, the former mayor of Baltimore, Kurt Schmoke. Yeah, I didn't necessarily agree with him, but I understood where he's coming from. But uh, again, there are all sorts of issues, today, including the, 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 the um, increasingly powerful nature of, of marijuana today as opposed to 30, 30 40 years ago. And the addictive uh, value. So, again, that's a tough issue. It's a difficult issue. I see both sides of it. But um, with regard to any number of options in end-of-life situations, most particularly, I thought that it wasn't the government's business. Bob, I want to go back to the ICC, and we live close by. We, we're about five, ten minutes away from the ICC. I live in North Potomac, and um, we just got on the Samig Highway. And look, it's, what, 17 miles long. We can hit 95, and we're in Baltimore City in 45 minutes. It's great. We pop over to Little Italy, cool. go down to <laughs> yeah, we go down to Vaccaro's, and we, we hit Sabatino's for a little bit of Italian cuisine. It's my, our favorite place to go. And then we're back in Montgomery County in, in no time. And this project was stalled over and over. I mean, I don't want to say stalled, but you got a lot of pushback from the environmentalists. Pushback? Um, we got boulders. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, we had we getting, uh, well, actually Governor Glendening tried to sell the right of ways off, if you recall. I, yeah, I remember. Me. <laughs> so uh, uh, it was a. It literally had appeared on a master plan in Montgomery County in 1950. Yeah. And and in the intervening years, a 108 had become a highway and a very dangerous highway with lots of uh, deaths, lots of accidents. 495 is, as you know, just a, a parking lot 
many hours mess. a day. It's a mess. And so I, I just I saw this opportunity, a rare opportunity, maybe the only one ever to actually get it done. I had a friendly Department of Transportation federally. I had a president who was a friend. I had, by the way, bipartisan support, Doug Duncan, who yeah. was talking about running against me at the time, was a major supporter to his great credit. Some, A number of Montgomery County delegates were, were uh, 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 Democrats were very supportive. And so I thought, man, this is it. This is it's a one-shot deal. It's kind of like charter schools. This is the one shot we're going to have to get it done. And and now it's a, such a wildly successful road. Um, people, I, I lost count of the number of people who have come up to me. and some, When originally opened with tears in their eyes, a couple of them, like I, now I get to my Little League games, I get home, I see my kids. I, I, it, it's just been a wild success. And uh, I'm quite proud of that uh, part, as part of my legacy. Yeah, and the few what, a few weeks ago, you stood on the side of the road with Governor Hogan, and yep. they put up these, they erected these nice signs that now every time we we go over to uh, you know over to Baltimore, we see that uh, that says dedicated to to Governor Ehrlich, and so they had this this ceremony on the side of the road, and look, you get you got some pushback from. People like Kevin Kamenitz who said oh, we cares. should. No, no, he, nobody cared. <laughs> nobody cared about that. Yeah, well, that's just <laughs> there was no and, pushback. And, it was just silly. But, yeah, I mean, the, some of these Democrats who are running for governor, and look, Kevin, you know Kevin Kamenitz, and this He's guy my is my classmate in high school. When I see yeah. him, I'm going to let him know about it too. So anyway, well, I mean, look, it, it, it really like, didn't matter. They're just, you know, they're, listen, I, I've seen this movie before. It's it's election year and. And Larry, Governor Hogan, and I have talked about this. Uh, Mike Miller is going to go bad. Uh, people who've been friendly to him are going to go bad. They want their state back. Yeah. And but it's uh, not their state; it's our before. state. Well, it's no, not the they, Democrats. It, well, it, listen. We think it's it's our state. You know, it's it's the collective. But they see it. When you're uh, the analogy I used to draw is when you're two years old and you have your playpen, and you. That's your world, man. You love that playpen, and then if your brother or sister arrives and the new kid comes in the playpen, guess what? You're not real happy, yeah. are you? <laughs> it's true. And look, it, when you you ran you, when you ran in 2006, you knew that was going to be a tough election. It was a tough year sure, for well, Republicans. Yeah, sure did. Yeah. I mean, Republicans. Yeah. I was in college at the time, and I remember working. I, I was working for Rick Santorum, who was a senator from oh, Pennsylvania, yeah. friend of mine, and. Yeah. Yeah, and look, he got beat by Bob Casey by like 18 points, and the Republicans lost the House. Um, the Republicans lost the Senate. It was a it was a tough year. Um, well, for, I, here it was a very interesting. I'll just tell you something I've, I've rarely told anyone, um, and my wife will confirm this. But when we left Congress to run for the governorship, I told Kendall that you know we could probably stay in the House for the rest of my life. Um, which is not my goal, and this is, might be an outside chance to win the governorship in Maryland, but I told her uh, the chance of being reelected in Maryland would be very low. Yeah. Uh, but then, but then, obviously, during the course of my tenure, our, our, the approval rating stayed very high, and, and on the eve of the election was in the mid-50s. And so um, I thought that we actually, you know, had, People thought we did a pretty good job, and, and uh, despite the fact the president was so unpopular that we had a you know, decent shot to even win re-election, but obviously not to be. Yeah, and and you know what? 
I guess it, it sort of sets in, and of course I've never been a governor of a major state like Maryland, but when you make that concession call, Bob, what's that like? What does that feel like? Oh, it's just it's well, you know, I'm a competitor. I'm an old jock. I, you know, I play college football, and and um, athletics is my ticket in life. So you're used to winning, you're used to losing, you're used to competing. Yeah. So it's it's very hard, but it is part of the deal. So I think you, O'Malley you ran a fair campaign. Oh, I'm not going to comment on any of that stuff. You know, it was it, it was what it was. Um, but uh, it just it was it was a reminder how difficult Maryland can be. Uh, that uh, the approval rating can be where it was, yet you get. Uh, you know, obviously less less than fifty. Uh, and when your approval ratings in the mid high fifties and you still lose, it's a, it's a, that was more that was more difficult to deal with than anything. Yeah. So you left the governor's mansion, and then after after you lost, what did you do after that? Did you get involved? Um, I started a the Baltimore office of a, a major southeastern law firm, Womble Carlisle, and uh, we opened the Baltimore office, which proved to be very successful. Proud of very proud of that. And uh, and then obviously I, I probably the, the, the thing I regret the most uh, in my political life was you know, running that race in 2010, which really violated one of the, the cardinal rules I knew I knew. You regret and, it. And and, and, and I, yeah, we I, I did because I, I I certainly wanted to be governor again. I certainly wanted you know change everything that Martin O'Malley was doing because I I opposed them on, on his policy. But I also knew that in Maryland an incumbent Democratic governor. Um, just doesn't lose. I don't think it had ever lost, and uh, or or if it ever happened, it, and that was just not a very good political decision on on my part. But I responded, I guess, to my own ego, but also people around me, and um, that obviously did not turn out well. We we thought um, we could sort of recreate the momentum we had created earlier, but that was not, not to be. It was just a again a, a, a democratic state. It's, it's there was awful. a rumor. There was a rumor at the time that I think Larry Hogan was even considering running in 2010. Yeah, yeah, we had, we had talked. Yeah, yeah, yes. Mm-hmm. So you ran that race and you put a fantastic person on your ticket, Mary Kane, who was former. Oh yeah, um, Secretary of State. Is she? Yeah. She was. She was part of my. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you what, Mary Kane is a dynamite person down down. She you know, she's down here where we are, Montgomery County. And uh, there's always rumblings, you know, what is Mary Kane going to do? Is she going to run for something? Could she, you know, she, she might run for – but, you know, I think – I don't know what she's up to these days, but I hope whatever she's doing, she's finding success, just like you, Governor. And Well, she, she just completed a very successful tenure at Sister Cities. Uh, you know, as Secretary of State, she really got into that government-to-government stuff. And the sister cities relationships we had around the state of Maryland and other states and cities around the world, and she carried that enthusiasm through. And she was there probably six, seven years uh, as sister cities, and she just completed her tenure there. So she's been, again, wildly successful, a great lady. When you ran the second time, Bob, there was the criticisms that it just didn't – you didn't have the right people around you or that you listened to people who you shouldn't have or you had a team that wasn't the same now, team was, as the last – what, what, we what had happened? a very, very similar team, very similar team. In fact, the same in most respects. The same outside, same pollster, same, same TV folks. At almost the same. Um, uh, and you know, we had into September. We had the polls were even, and we were feeling pretty good. And then we just got blown out with money, absolutely blown out with money uh, in the last eight weeks, and particularly in the Washington suburbs. Um, 
uh, just got blown out with uh, with ads, and we could not we could not uh, raise the money to meet them. And 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 so that was sort of that was uh, again a. I knew it was going to be difficult um, and not a very good decision on my part, but I thought there were so much that uh, we left. There were so many things that we didn't get done. I wanted to get done, or so many things that we had started that were working. And then I saw obviously Governor Malley come in with you know a very different set of values, a very different set of uh, positions, and in my view, take the state backward again and. And uh, I listened to, uh, you know, sort of too many people where I really should have um, un- understood the dynamic of that race. But but the, the thing about the team or whatever, that was just, I mean, it was the same team. Look ahead to 2014 and when Larry ran, and I got to be honest with you, back, I'd say earlier in the year, and and I mean this, and I and I'm, I'm going to admit this in you know in this interview with you, I didn't think Larry was going to win. I really thought yeah, well, that Anthony. Well, I mean, yeah, I listen, I, I, I guess what yeah. I, I I had dinner with him, and I said, Larry, I just don't I don't see it. I don't see it. But he was insistent. Uh, he was absolutely insistent, and he was absolutely correct. He thought uh, Anthony Brown was a, weak, was a rather weak candidate. He thought, uh, uh, again, uh, like with us, uh, when we won, uh, Governor Glendening was going out with a very, uh, with a very low poll rating, and 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 the problem uh, uh, with us in 2006 was Martin O'Malley's numbers were out of the world. You know, he, his positive negatives, his, his his approval rating was incredibly high, but by 2014, his numbers were very low. So uh, you had a, a very unpopular president and a very unpopular governor uh, on the eve of that election, and that certainly helped helped uh, Governor Hogan. In addition to uh, Governor Hogan run a terrific campaign, uh, uh, Anthony Brown did not run a very good campaign, and uh, Larry won, and it was just to his everlasting credit. He saw a way, and uh, he got it done. Did Larry – shortly after Larry night. won. It was a fun, was a fun night. <laughs> Were you with him? Were you with oh, yeah, Larry we were when there he won? Yeah. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you kidding? It was yeah, we've so, been friends for thirty-five years. Well, and and the thing is, is that then we had a presidential election, and then uh, the rumors started to creep out: Is Bob Ehrlich going to run for president? And so the thing is, is that Bob, I, and I'm not saying this because I, I I I'm not a brown noser, and I don't and I can't stand people who are, and just people to just say things just to, to pad your ego because you got healthy ego as it is and it's good but here's the thing is Bob I think that you could be positioned at some point in your career to be on the national side of things you could you can contribute in a, in a much uh, in, in another way to and pu- in, in get involved in public service now Look, we got President Trump in the White House now, and I, I really don't want to talk about Trump tonight, and I'm not going to put you on the spot. But um, I, I just – is there a future in national politics for Bob Earle? Well, it, what happened in 16 was – and this is just what happened. Um, I had been invited to give a speech in New Hampshire uh, early on in the cycle, very early on in the cycle. Remember, you called me. Yeah, I did, and uh, and I gave. I went out there. I didn't know anybody. They had no idea who I was. Trust me. If anybody did, <laughs> actually, a few people did because they were former Marylanders. But I gave a speech, and um, the speech just went over, and um, it was sort of just my my here's the way I see things speech, and 
And that just led to a lot of invites in in New Hampshire and Maine and Florida and some other states, and that's what started those rumors. And, and I, it, was, it was never a serious, obviously, effort. I'm sure you recall at the time, but it was really good for me to uh, do more national things and speak to more national audiences and get out there with sort of my view on on, on things uh, after eight years of progressivism on steroids. And it, things worked out very well. Um, I had uh, early on decided to support my friend John Kasich, uh, who was my former chairman in the House Budget Committee, and uh, went around with him a little bit. And then when he was out, it was uh, pretty easy for me to um, go to to Donald Trump because we had known each other for years. We had negotiated with him to bring Miss America pageant to uh, Maryland. We had uh, gotten to know him a little bit socially, and so I uh, became part of his uh, media team and did a lot of uh, interviews on MSNBC and CNN and Fox and all that. So it was pretty easy to do, but I did enjoy more of a national platform. And, um, and then the rumors obviously started after the election, after he won, uh, whether there was a cabinet position, and, and just to be very honest with you, there's there's probably two I'd have an interest in. I'm, I'm not going to name them here, and mm-hmm. uh, I, I've, I've certainly made that known. But in, if it doesn't occur, it, it doesn't occur. But it, if one of those would become open, it'd be something I'd be interested in. Let's hope that they. I mean, that would be a smart thing to have a former Maryland governor in that seat and. Let's face it. I think that would be good for our state, would be good for you. I'd love to see it. Um, so, Bob, looking at this race this year, we've got a governor's race going on, and you know, polls have Larry. They're, he's in a good spot. Um, it's Nothing is for sure for a Republican running statewide in Maryland. Yep. Um, but you look at this race, and you look at some of the contenders on the Democratic side. So you have Richard Baker, Kamenetz. And uh, Rich Madalino down where I am and um, Ben Jealous and a couple other of these folks that are that are jumping in. And do you see any standout candidates that are running? Yeah, I'm not going to handicap, handicap the Democratic field. Yeah. I'm just not. I, I just, I'm just not. You know, I feel comfortable doing it. And obviously okay. I support Larry a thousand percent. I just I just remind Republicans that um, you know, I, I there's one good thing, obviously, with regard to that field. Generally, there's no Democrat right now that has sort of the money profile or approval that that Martin O'Malley had against us uh, coming in 2006, and that's wow. a good thing for Governor Hogan. Uh, on on the other side of the of the ledger is just the state of Maryland is even probably a little more difficult today than it was then. Uh, demographically, uh, just uh, the state obviously has is is quite to the left, and uh, President Trump is very unpopular, very unpopular in Maryland, and that's just a fact of it. It's just a fact, and and clearly the Democratic formula is, is no secret. My God, they've they've done it every day for the last couple of years, is to drive that that antagonism toward the president and attach it to uh, Governor Hogan. And so that's going to be the formula. We know it. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. Yeah, and but isn't that really working? Is, is it I don't really know. Working? You know what? We, we, we don't know because we don't know who the nominee is going to be. Yeah, that's you know, true. We, 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 we don't know because uh, it could work. It could backfire. It could – who knows? But clearly that's going to be part of their, their strategy. Well, I think Larry is – 
done a great job of being a moderating force. And I mean, I'm, uh, I'm with him. I, I, and I like him a lot. And I think that he's yeah, been, good guy. I, I mean, I don't, I don't agree with him on some issues as we all don't agree on some issues, but um, I think that he's, uh, I think he's played it smart and he is, uh, he's doing all the right things and it seems like he's in a good spot, but you never know with Maryland politics, something could happen out of the blue and you just don't know until election night. Um, so, well, you know, it, it, we just, and this is no great secret. There, there's obviously, um, a, a Trump base in, in the Republican party. Yeah. And, uh, and they're, gunning you know, for they're, they're, they're not happy. And, um, that has to be dealt with. And, and the only person who can really deal with that is the governor <laughs> and, um, how to deal with, with the base. And I, you know, a lot of my friends are in that base, uh, uh, but also keep his appeal, you know, cross party to you know, that coalition that I've had and he has, and any successful Republican has to have in Maryland. That crossover Democrat is 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 uh, is, is not going to be easy, but I think he can do it. He's gifted politically. Uh, he's um, popular. He's a good guy. Everybody knows he's a good guy, and that, that's very helpful. Bob, what was the most the highest point of your governorship in Maryland. What was the best day of your governorship? Oh, the Preakness days. Preakness days. Preakness days, yeah. Because because you could market because your your day my day was full of marketing Maryland to the world. Yeah. You know, I mean, you you meet with you'd meet with uh, groups of uh, uh, folks from 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 Asia, from Europe, you know, here to buy or sell horses. Uh, you go on national TV and market Maryland. You know the Preakness is our Super Bowl. You know it's a celebration of Maryland, of the horse racing, of horse farms, of the equine industry in our state. You know lots of jobs. Uh, you go around the world. You know, what do you associate with Maryland? Well, the Orioles, Ravens, and Preakness. Yeah. And, what and crabs. Been, <laughs> and crabs. Uh, what do you What have you been doing lately? Are you um, Are you practicing law? I have my my fourth book coming. Uh, my fourth book will be out either December or January. We're about to sign a contract with a publisher. I'm very excited about it. Um, the, each book has done better than the previous, and this one we're looking to sort of hit a, more of a home run. I really enjoy writing. As you know, I write a regular column for the Washington Examiner. Oh, yeah. And um, so the, the, the book, again, also gives me a platform to run around the country. The, in the last book tour for the third book, I was in 15 states. And sort of gives me more of a national platform, and I can. What I really enjoy is going places where people don't know me, and and giving them my sort of, hey, Mom Bob Ehrlich, this is what I think. This is what I think needs to happen in our country and our culture, and and people listen. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and look, you've you've done a lot of media too. I've seen you on Hannity. Um, you, yeah, I've done you, a lot, you, yeah. And, and I keep, uh, what, it, what the interesting thing is about my legacy. And I'm going to New York on Wednesday to give another speech. I've probably given 20, 30 speeches last four or five years on criminal justice reform. You know, we we did that in Maryland before it was cool, before anybody was doing it, when it was counterintuitive for a Republican administration yeah. to do it. We we just did it because I thought it was the right thing to do, and now it's such a major part of my legacy. I have a clinic at uh, Catholic University School of Law, Columbus School over there. Or devoted to criminal justice reform, I'm asked to speak in front of very liberal and very conservative and in between audiences around the country on on reentry issues and the opioid crisis and uh, 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 
sort of what we did in Maryland and pardons and commutation. My criminal justice reform was such a huge issue for us when nobody in the world was talking about it, and my own staff was saying, why are we doing this? Well, so, I, um, I, so in any event, that, that, that's, that's pretty fun, and this Wednesday I'll be in New York giving another speech about it. Well, and look, I and just to just to wrap up, um, I just wanted to say that you, uh, when you were governor of Maryland back in the time that I was really coming into politics and learning about Maryland politics more so, and I, I just always remembered that um, I looked at you and I'm thinking, you know, here's a guy that really cares about his, this state and is passionate about politics, and you know, you you've always sort of You've been. It seems like you've been humbled by this, and over the years. Um, and by the way, I've read all your books, and I, I can't wait to read another one. And I've always thought that you were one of the the stand up guys in politics. And as I'm becoming more cynical, and I see a lot of things I don't like about politics, I just think that Maryland has a lot of opportunity. It's a great place to raise family. Our kids are in public schools. We're pleased yep. with a lot of things. And you 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 ran your governorship, and you were. You were the kind of governor that um, you you could talk to both sides. You could put a, put aside hard ideology and then instead think about what's best for the citizens of Maryland. While it wasn't always popular, you did what was in your gut and you made those decisions based upon what you thought was the right thing to do at the time. And that's important. And that's when young people like myself want to get involved in politics. However, maybe it's on the sidelines activism, running for public office, uh, they just have to remember that something behind them is driving that force, and they got to stick with it and don't let them lose sight of that. And I think throughout your career, and as I've watched you as a governor, as a person, you haven't lost sight of that, that mission, and that's just breaking it down to helping people that need help. And am I right, Bob? Well, I think um, that I'm not one of those that run around uh, – degrading a public service it's it can be very difficult it can be heart-wrenching it can be tough on your income it can be very difficult on your ego it can be a negative but the bottom line is it, there's a lot of positive to it and being able to sort of get things the old schaefer-esque you know, being able to get things done for people and to show government at its best or to show private initiative at its best is as good as it gets yeah. And I, I told everybody when I left, you know, public office, as, as long as I had my, I'll take my plaques and my reputation, and there, and, and that's you know that's as good as it gets. And and so if if you leave with, with that in mind, and and you keep your, uh, uh, your your best instincts around you, uh, you can do some good things. And and so I I talk, I'll be at Towson University on Tuesday talking to the kids about public service and trying to encourage them to enter politics in a very cynical time. But you're right. Yeah. You're absolutely right. The way you articulate it, it's, a, it, it's if you really want to, if you have strong opinions about things, you should get involved. I agree. And you know, former Governor Bob Ehrlich, you are your stand-up guy for coming on. I always enjoy talking to you. We'll get together sometime. And I just, it means a lot to me. You came on tonight, and I like catching up with you. I, I, I said to Kim the other night. I said, listen, I, I it was a couple weeks ago. I said, you know what? I ought to reach out to Bob, see what he's up to. Maybe he'll come on the show. Um, and I do this, I do this show every, 
every Sunday night, and we're talking a lot about candidates, and we're talking about all kinds of stuff. And I think it's just another way in the media to get out a different story. And you know, as a one-shop kind of guy, where with a blog and a podcast like this, um, people come up to me and say, you know, you're doing a good service, and that that humbles me because we like yeah. to, I like to they're listening. Yeah, they they use this information at the ballot box, but um, you know that's important. We want to get out the the policy. We want to talk about what's happening, what's making people tick um, as far as politics goes in Maryland. But Bob, um, I hope you stay with us, stay in the loop with us, and um, keep doing what you're doing. And um, when your new book comes out one of these days, we'll come back. back. We'll come back and we'll talk all about it. And I can't wait to read it. So. With that, I'm going to let you go to bed because I'm sure you're an early riser. Um, so I really Brian, appreciate you doing great, it. Great talking to you. Enjoyed it. Godspeed. Great talking yeah, to you. God's, all right. God bless, Bob. You have a good night. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, friends. That was former Governor Bob Ehrlich. Um, yeah, he's a hell of a guy, man. I, I You know, disagree with him, agree with him. Um, and, you know, we didn't really get to talk way in depth about his governorship. We talked about a few issues, but um always been impressed by the way Governor Ehrlich has carried himself. And uh, I think he's a stand-up guy. I really do. So with that, I want to say once again, thank you to Governor Ehrlich for coming on the show. And uh, he's going to come back. He's going to talk about his new book that's out. So um hope you're listening in. Hope you hope you'll tune in for that. This podcast, this live episode of a minor detail will of course be turned into a podcast you can find us on blog talk radio we're on itunes at a minor detail we're on stitcher radio tune in and uh, i'm going to post this uh on our facebook page a minor detail um so keep keep reading always keep reading a minor detail we get the scoop had some good ones over the weekend so we're um we're chugging along a lot of these candidates in montgomery county are announcing their at large county council races and we're trying to keep up with that and as i said i'm a one shop kind of guy um it <laughs> if i don't get to the story i will eventually and it might be a couple days late but uh, i got a full-time job we got two kids and three cats and we got another cat we have a cat gang in our house so uh we're dealing with that well not dealing but it's it's a lot of fun we we got we love animals and we're always thinking, can we get more animals? And eventually we're going to be those crazy cat people. I wonder what the cutoff is for a crazy cat person. Like, is it four cats? Is it five? Maybe three. We have three now. So we're bordering on that territory. We're on the cusp. We're tinkering on the edge of being crazy cat people. And that's just who we are. So, oh, well, that's fine. Um, a minor detail.com. Stay tuned. Got a lot of cool stuff that we're going to write about this week. Some Washington County stuff that's going on. Candidates entering the race, gubernatorial candidates. Uh, we talked to Krishante Vignaraja, who is running for governor. She's got a court case out. So, minordetail.com. Follow us every night, every Sunday night on blogtalkradio.com slash a minor detail here live every Sunday. I don't know who's next on the show, but Doug Gansler told me he's going to come on. So I'm going to try to get the former attorney general on. So I appreciate y'all listening. It means a lot to me when I hear that uh, you do listen and you read and it, it really is humbling. And I, uh, I always, I take that to the bank and it, it, it means a lot to me when people, people read 
what's going on. And like I said, we're just using this and trying to get some information out for voters to make informed decisions. So with that, um, go watch Curb Your Enthusiasm. <laughs> go watch football. And uh, I'm going to be watching uh, – I'm probably going to watch a little bit of HBO tonight. And oh, and I, and by the way, I should say this incidentally. The show on CNBC – I listen to CNBC all the time. Shark Tank, great show. You should really think about watching that if you already don't watch it. It's good – build your business acumen. makes you think about a lot of things. So they should be paying me to say that, but they're not because I don't make any money doing this. So all right, folks, um, I'm going to wrap it up, and you all have a great week. We'll see you next Sunday at 9 o'clock p.m.